This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. The guest on this episode is Lance Munguia, and he directed the feature-length documentary Third Eye Spies, and this is uh, really a good, in-depth study. This is not a fluffy overview. This is an in-depth study of the remote viewing program that was run um, some decades ago, and the film is mostly focused on Russell Targ, and he played a, a leading role in uh, not only in the film, but in the program that was run out of SRI, which is the Stanford Research Institute. And they were doing some secret work trying to understand and weaponize these, these uh, psychic skills, these remote viewing skills. A lot of talk about spies, a lot of talk about the CIA, and, and it's quite a wonderful film. We ended up talking um, about a lot more than just the film. We we went all over the map and uh, talked about meditation and talked about the UFO stuff a lot actually showed up. And um, and there's a few points in the audio where I kind of misspoke. And then I what I did is I just plugged back in a little segment where I corrected myself. So you'll hear that in the interview. This interview was recorded in March of 2019. Please enjoy. Lance, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, Mike, thank you so much for having me. It means a lot to me to be here. Good. You just finished a film. Um, it's called Third Eye Spy, and it follows Russell Targ. I guess he would be the central character. And very early on in the film, it's within the first few minutes, there's a scene where Russell is in a cemetery, and he speaks very you know, solemnly and says, this may be the last chance to tell our story. And that's how the movie began. So to set it up that way, really, really, you know, I was I was pulled in. Let me put it that way. Oh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And um, and yeah, that was kind of the thing that pulled me in as well. You know, I mean, I, I um, when I first sort of sat down with Russell and we talked about making a movie about the 20 year history of the military's use of psychics, for lack of a better word, for as remote viewers, uh, you know, um, the thing that was on our minds the most was being able to preserve these people's accounts firsthand before they, uh, you know, before they passed on. I mean, you know, because when we started this, uh, Ingo Swan, who was one of their their best remote viewers, had just passed away a year earlier. So it was really very much on Russell's mind was his own mortality and the mortality of the other players that were involved. And, and uh, you know, we wanted to talk to them while they were still you know, really able to tell the complete story. Uh, and so we had that kind of a, a window after it being declassified and, you know, the time to make the film. So the, the mortality really kind of, to me, became kind of a, a, a theme, you know, in, in the film is to, you know, just sort of just get this story out, you know, because it was very important, I think, to everybody that was involved that, that the story be preserved. And it, it wasn't about just Russell Targ or just one or two people, um, you know, that were involved with these government programs. Uh, it, it was the collective weight of everybody being in sort of one documented place. Um, and, and that's the thing that I felt was the most important, because the more I heard about this stuff, uh, the more it was so shocking and, and so unbelievable. Um, I, I really felt the only way that it would make sense for people was to have all of the very credible players that had been involved 
on camera. And, and, and so we managed to do that. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we were able to preserve that history. Yeah, it was remarkable. And, you know, so, so the, the movie is, you know, slick, you know, it's kind of zippy the way it's edited. And at the same time, it's, um, it's very thoughtful and very straight and very grounded. And I, that was appreciated by me because I've, you know, I watch a lot of documentaries and I'm just, just my heart sinks when they, when they turn into, um, kind of exploitative entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was another thing that I, I spent months, uh, doing, you know, background interviews with some of the players and, and, uh, exchanging emails and, you know, writing these, you know, um, very long emails back and forth, uh, you know, with people like Joe McMonagall and Ken Kress and Kit Green and, you know, some of the players that were involved, um, to really convince them that this was going to be a serious look at their work and that this was not just a sensational kind of a, a flash in the pan that was just designed to kind of elicit, you know, whatever short-term response got the best reaction. And, um, you know, for me, again, it was just so much about preserving the history. Uh, and at the same time, um, I did tons and tons and tons of screenings of this for, for both audiences that were aware of this kind of topic matter, like, uh, you know, the IRVA, you know, International Remote Viewing Association Conference or the uh, SSE Conference, um, you, know, you know, places like that, or just people who knew nothing about this. And what I found was it is challenging to put a whole bunch of Ph.D. scientists in a film and, and then remain – invested in that for you know close to two hours of time and so i developed this kind of a hybrid style uh, you know where where it, it uh you know using a lot of the old kind of archival looking footage comp- and, the, and the kind of looks of this you know things that sort of kept the audience kind of moving and, and making it snappy enough that it really moved uh, and it kept your attention the whole time because that was really a challenge you know because it, it can be such a weighty subject uh, when you're talking about, you know, 20 years of remote viewing data, you know, that, that had a lot of which never been talked about before publicly. And and a lot of the scientists like Russell, you know, who was also the produ- uh, producer on the film would say, no, but we also need to put in this other example and this other example. And you need to show a longer you know example of remote viewing. And, and my argument would always be, you know, like w- once you've seen a miracle and you can accept that the miracle is real. You, you don't have to detail out every you know other miracle that ever happened. It's like people understand that it's possible and then you can kind of just go to the highlights because uh, it, it's just – it was so much information. I, I literally could have made three or four completely different versions of Third Eye Spies and, and all of them would have been interesting. Hey, so you, you as far as the sophisticated audience, uh, you're – the people listening right now are about as sophisticated as you're going to find as far as having a – a very good working knowledge of this end of the esoteric spectrum. Now that said, um, could you give like a little elevator spiel about, you know, what remote viewing is? Um, Sure, sure, sure. Um, Remote viewing is the act of using only your mind to explore things, people, places, um, even um, emotional context of people uh, outside of space and time to see things that are otherwise hidden. And, um, you know, this is an ability that we all have, you know, it's, it's part of our own natural intuitive ability. And, um, some people may be really great at it you know, other people may just be able to kind of carry a tune with it, but the act of being able to use your intuition to see things that are otherwise hidden, uh, is part of our birthright. It's part of the reason that you and I are standing here, or sitting here, I should say, doing this interview um, when someone else isn't, because 
our ancestors knew to go left instead of right to avoid that tiger that would have eaten them, you know, or, or, or whatever. It's just part of who we are. I agree. Yeah. Or that it would have been, um, you know, like the shaman in the village would really have had magical abilities or what we would call magical abilities now. Yes. And that would have been normal to have a shaman in the village. It does not seem normal now to have a medicine man or a mystic or a, I guess, you know, the fortune teller, you know, with the neon light on her door in the you know outskirts of town. We still have that in our present day. And that's dismissed outright by a lot of folks. And so and also um, to take that on, uh, I've read um, two of uh, Joe McMonagle's books and he and a lot of the book was talking about how frustrating it was to be taken seriously within the framework of the armed forces, you know, doing this psychic work. Yes. And, and, and that's that's really the largest, I think, problem that that this whole field of study has is that it, because it seems so unbelievable, people don't ever like to feel like they've been conned. And that includes to myself. I mean, I'm sure it includes you, too. It's like, you know, your, your discernment is very important, but but we tend to slip into this kind of dogmatic skepticism when there's something that we don't really understand because it's easier because it's like, well, we're, you're not going to fool me with this. And and part of, I think, SRI's success uh, in, in remote viewing uh, is the fact that Walking into a major scientific laboratory, one of the the biggest you know um, scientific laboratories for doing classified work in the world, and then having very legitimate scientists with PhDs after their names say, "Okay, um, psychic abilities are real. Uh, we understand you've never done this before, but you're going to sit down in the chair and you're going to be the psychic today." And they would do this again and again, and they would get great results. Um, on the other hand, they had these very dogmatic skeptics. I mean, a, a really quick story about Joe McMonagall. Joe McMonagall was the Army's sort of most famous remote viewer. Uh, he won a Legion of Merit Award, uh, you know, which is the highest award you can get as a non-combatant in the U.S. military, uh, for something like, what, 250 missions used remote viewing to, to get information they otherwise could not. And he told a story um, that I actually haven't shared on air before, that um, at one point someone else at his base in Fort Meade um, – pulled him into a broom closet and put a gun to his head and said, you're going to tell us exactly how it is that you're faking what you're doing and how you're getting this done, or we're going to blow your head off. <laughs> you know, because basically <laughs> even his own colleagues in the intelligence community uh, did not trust where he was getting his information from. They, you know, I'm, I'm sure not all of them, but there was somebody there obviously on his base that was convinced that he was somehow a Soviet agent or, uh, you know, somehow pulling the wool over people's eyes. And this was a common thread, you know, um, not to that maybe extent, but uh, they, they constantly had this sort of uh, um, a giggle factor working against them, you know, where, where people just would refuse to take them seriously, no matter how much great information they were able to pull out of the air. And then there's the secrecy, you know, bubble that must surround everything they're doing that he would make it impossible for him to give that answer. Like when the gun to his head, I guess. That's right. That's right. And and that, that actually has been the bane of this entire field of study, you know, in terms of psychic research for the last, you know, uh, at least since the 60s, 70s, uh, is that the very best work was not being done publicly. You know, it was being done in classified circles and it was be, and it was being done through a uh, a process using the remote government, which could I'm sorry the uh, 
the U.S. government, which could verify remote viewings in a way that nobody else on the planet could because they had satellites and they had human intelligence and they had other assets to back up what someone in a room at Fort Meade or in a laboratory at SRI was saying. You know, so you had all of this great work being done and yet you had scientists like Russell and even people like Dean Radin and, and Hal Putoff and so many others um, that, that could talk about it, but they had to talk about it in very – uh, sort of not definitive ways, and and that really allowed the skeptics, I think, to really pounce on this subject matter and and uh, belittle it for a long time because we were arguing over very small things, and and the the really big things that these people were seeing couldn't even be discussed until now. And I, I'm, I suspect that you must have run into this while making the film, where I'm certain, and I would expect there to be things that they cannot talk about to this day. Absolutely. Um, Hal Putoff, uh, I asked Hal, you know, I spent three days with Hal Putoff at his, in his lab at, at Austin and, and uh, kind of just followed him around. And I asked him at one point, you know, how much of this stuff do you think is still not released to the public? And he said probably 70 percent. That's a lot. And that's that would have been my somewhere my guess to over half. Sure. And I, I'm just guessing just this. The government seems to love to stamp things top secret. So, well, uh, you know, originally this entire program was marked automatic do not downgrade, you know, by CIA because uh, normally stuff gets declassified. I think it's after 20 years or 25 years. And uh, Russell had been waiting for that sort of clock to tick out and he wanted to write a book on this subject. And and um, other people had leaked things, you know, illegally, but Russell didn't want to do that. And um, it was marked automatic do not downgrade. You know, he saw the, the files and he said, oh, my gosh, they're never going to release this. And it, it took, um, you know, a lot of people lobbying uh, former allies that they had in Congress and, you know, things like that for for the, the stuff to finally get, you know, trickled out, you know, over time. And I think once the, the stuff started coming out, then I think they actually really opened the floodgate and they let out a lot of documents. Um, I, and I suspect that's probably because. Um, CIA and other agencies figured if there's a whole bunch of information that people have to kind of wade through, uh, you know, it's it's not as easy to see the really good stuff. <laughs> That's what I think. Did you get a chance to talk with Jim Mars at all before he died? You know, I met Jim Mars once um, at a at a conference, and I and I did not. You know, I, I've read some of his stuff, but I was not able to to speak with him. I know he was one of the earliest, you know, sort of documenters of a lot of the army program. You, you know, interviewing people like like Joe and Lynn Buchanan and people like that, you know, which which actually, you know, funny enough, have been the most accessible out of all of the people that were originally involved, because um, I, I think because those guys were not career intelligence people, you know, like they were they were uh, army guys, you know, that that had been doing intelligence, but then got out of the army. And, and I think we're much more open to talking about this. So, you know, but but no, I, I I wish I had been able to really interview Jim Jim Mars more, but I wasn't able to. Yeah, I spoke to him and did an interview um, with him. Oh, I don't know, just must have been six plus years ago, maybe seven years ago. And he talked about and he's been very public about this. And he talked about the fact that he produced a book and he had a uh, the book was all done, all ready to go, all ready to go to the press. And then um, for some reason, which. You can guess what that might be. Um, this was a book on the remote viewing program. I think it was called Psy Spies. It was later released in its uh, a little bit amended format um, a, or over a decade after it was originally proposed to be published. The publisher, great big publisher, contacted him and said, oh, we're, here we're, gonna, we're, we're, we're not going to publish the book, but we're going to pay you in full. Wow. 
And he says, that's never happened to him before. So he got paid off and the book never got published. And then shortly thereafter, I can't remember who it was. I'm drawing a blank now. I should know this. But um, someone from within the program put out a kind of mm, watered down a book of their own on the subject. And it and his sense was that the secret keepers wanted to manage and control how the information got out. Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing process. I came back in to amend something because I misspoke. I made a mistake about one point, and I want to correct it here. I want to clarify this. In the interview, I said that someone from within the program published their own book shortly after Jim Mars, uh, that his book was canceled. That's incorrect. The book Jim Mars wrote was canceled in July of 1995. And according to Jim, everyone involved in the work came to believe that this cancellation had been ordered by someone, and this is a quote from him, ordered by someone with great authority. Uh, Four months later, after that cancellation, the CIA acknowledged remote viewing, and they did this in a news release. Now, this received um, superficial coverage in both the New York Times and the Washington Post. And this is a this is a direct quote from Jim. And although it was announced publicly, the story was essentially dismissed in the mainstream press. Jim's book was later published uh, five years later in 2010 under the title Psy Spies. And that book got amended and updated and republished again in 2007. Okay, I just needed to clarify that. Back to the interview. Yeah, and, and, and you find that again and again. Um, you know, this, this subject matter is, is consistently marginalized in, in the media, uh, you know, in, in, in circles. Um, you know, I think recently it's become a little bit easier because I think that uh, probably a lot of the older secret keepers have probably moved on and are not involved in the agencies anymore. And I think that a lot of times when it comes to covert stuff, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You know, they're so compartmentalized in these different programs. Um, you know, even when it came to interviewing someone like Ken Kress, who was our, uh, you know, who was the undercover um, physicist that was originally the first program monitor from CIA uh, that, that at the inception of the remote viewing program with SRI. Hold on, hold on. I got to interrupt. I got What is an undercover physicist? Well, an undercover physicist would have been a person who. You know, he he was a, a a nuclear physicist or something. I mean, he was some kind of a physicist, um, and and nobody knew that he was associated with CIA. So if he was going out and making some sort of connection with SRI, nobody would know that it was coming from CIA. They would think it was just one physicist talking to another physicist. That was the sort of the CIA's idea in appointing Ken, uh, you know, to oversee the program. You know, um, it was actually Sid Gottlieb of MK Ultra fame who recommended uh, Ken you know, to be involved. And he said, you know, well, you're a physicist and I'm sure you can talk, you know, physicist stuff to these other guys at SRI and, and, um, oversee this, but nobody knew that Ken was in CIA or that CIA was overseeing this. So, so he was completely undercover and actually his name had never been released or, or come forward, you know, and he'd never done any real interviews, uh, for, you know, until our film, you know, really, you know, he, he had written some, um, articles within intelligence circles, uh, talking about the findings when the program, you know, once the stuff had been declassified, but he never actually gave an interview or came forward. So, but because those, the, you know, people like that, you know, Ken had to go to CIA to get all of his questions 
cleared, you know, for, for the documentary. So he had stuff. So the, so the questions that you were going to ask him needed to be cleared. Right. Okay. Questions that I was going to be asking him, um, I submitted a list, and then he also included his own list of things to be talked about. And, you know, they, they all came back approved. Um, he did say there was an additional list that he tried to get declassified that he was not able to because it had not been declassified yet. So there were some things he couldn't talk about. Uh, and I don't know what they were because he couldn't talk about them. But but I was amazed at how much was cleared. And what it suggested to me is that the guy sitting in the clearance office at CIA probably knows nothing about the remote viewing program because they released some pretty cool stuff to us that I that nobody knew about, like the fact that um, there were other CIA agents being uptrained to be remote viewers. Uh, there were other um, you know sort of missions that they had gone on internally within CIA uh, after or around the time of uh, remote viewer Pat Price's death, you know who was was killed or passed away shortly before uh, you know um, all of that had occurred. So I, long story short, I think that that um, the u s. intelligence agencies back then when Jim Mars was trying to publish his first book, um, it was still probably closer. Do you know what year that was? I could look it up. I, I would have to look it up in the earth. I'm guessing it would have been in the early nineties. Yeah, so if it was early 90s, it's before this whole thing even really was declassified, and he was talking primarily to the Army guys. The one vibe that I got from the CIA people we spoke with when talking about the Army guys was that they didn't like the Army guys. You know, they, they did not like the Army um, remote viewing program, and in fact, the head of CIA intentionally would go out of his way to consistently denigrate the Army program, uh, you know, when it came to congressional meetings and things like that, because – my feeling is that the army guys just weren't lifelong intelligence people. You know, you, you had people trying to get movie deals and trying to, you know, write books and, and go out and speak to people like Jim Mars, I'm sure. I'm sure he was probably at the center of that at the time before all of this came out. And and that led to a lot of hand wringing within CIA and other agencies that were still using this. You know, because even as the CIA was denigrating the army program, they were using the army program and they were also using other aspects of, of remote viewing that weren't in the army, like people at SRI and other consultants that, that they also had brought in by that point that were not SRI. So the, the, the bottom line is, um, my feeling is that probably the army program was killed on the vine. Uh, and, and Dale Graff, the head of the DIA, uh, you know, um, program at Fort Meade, you know, he has told me that he felt, he felt like towards the end of the program in the early nineties, before this sort of all came out, um, they were being choked off. They were no longer being given sort of the really good assignments. Um, you know, they had absolutely no funding for basic amenities and things like, you know, in their in their unit. And I really think they were being punished because you had army grunts who were getting out and talking about this because it was incredible and, and they were trying to cash in on it. And even in the film, you know, Dale says, uh, you know, he he had gone to Jack Verona, who was the head of DIA, and he said, what are we supposed to do about these people who are leaking all this information out? And Verona said, do nothing. You know, do not do, do not engage them in any way. Let them say whatever they want. People will think they're crazy. And life goes on, you know, and, and it wasn't until, you know, President Carter came out and, and started talking about it inadvertently at, at a talk at Emory University, um, you know, that 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 finally triggered DIA to hand things back to CIA and then officially cancel the program. Uh, you know, so I, I really think that that was sort of the emphasis for that was was just the fact that you had a lot of kind of people talking. Yeah. Hey, 
We will need to take a short break. For non-members, there will be a few commercials. But for paying members, we'll be right back. And we're back with Lance Mangia, and we are talking about his movie, Third Eye Spies, and the remote viewing program that was uh, commissioned and run by the CIA and the armed forces for espionage purposes, and all the strangeness uh, that lies within that murky subject. Yes. Hey, just before we oh the break, you were talking about the sort of the tensions between um, the departments, and I want to change directions a little bit. When I spoke with Jim Mars, I asked him the question because I sensed it. And I just I knew because of the books that I had read. I said, you know, I've been reading up on this stuff. And my sense is that that some of the people involved in the remote viewing program have had UFO contact. And Jim, like, was very clear. He cut me off and he said, it's not some. All of them. All of them had some sort of contact experience. And he was specifically talking about the military-trained remote viewers early on in the, in the program. And then there's another. I have, there's a wonderful clip of um, Jacques Vallée on YouTube, and he's talking in front of an audience. And I, I, I know he was coming out and speaking openly about the remote viewing program for a few years there. And um, he said he was called in specifically because of his knowledge of the UFO phenomena. And he, you know, basically concluded that... I can't remember how he said it. I'm pretty sure he said all of the people involved in the program have had some sort of UFO contact and they could trace their remote viewing, let's say the remote viewing gifts, back to those contact experiences. I don't know if, if, if you touched on that at all. I, I, it wasn't in the movie, but I'm just wondering if you talked about doing the process. I, I did. I did. And it's a subject that, that fascinates me, you know, personally. And, um, you know, Russell's and, and my sort of mantra in making the film was one unbelievable thing at a time. And, and that, you know, like we needed to establish sort of the validity of the data and the history and, and the um, sort of the reality of remote viewing, you know. And so, so that was sort of like step one. But in reality, yeah, I mean, um, you know, some of the pretty much, yeah, every remote viewer I've spoken with has had some sort of encounter at some point, uh, y you know, either through remote viewing or elsewise, um, you know. With, and one of the I'm just going to interrupt. One of the elsewise things would be a near death experience. Yes. Well, near death experiences, uh, you know, all of these things. Um, I, I think that actually the UFO phenomenon and remote viewing are, are two sides of the same coin. You know, it, it's the same thing and it's the same thing that you would you would find. If you were, uh, if you just became a, a deep meditator, you know, or if you got really into, um, you know, DMT or ayahuasca, or you know, however you access the the sort of cosmic internet, you know, you're going to find there's other people on the internet and they're using it too, and and I I think that what the evidence sort of suggests in this area is that your your consciousness can go anywhere, anywhere, you know, and it doesn't matter. Uh, how far away it is uh, or or uh, any sense of time is irrelevant. You know, um, so it's just as easy for you to make a phone call to Alpha Centauri as it is to make a call to your friend in the next room and you're trying to read what's on his uh, note card psychically. You know, like, you know, it's it's consciousness is the primary thing, like Max Max, Max Planck said. You know, it, it is the thing that sort of drives uh, all communication to a certain degree. And it also the other missing factor here is your imagination, you know, because it's an imaginary skill. You know, remote viewing is simply just the act of closing your eyes and imagining 
what the first unexpected images you see are, you know, when you're looking at a given target. All you have to know is that the target exists. So if you see a UFO in the sky, that's automatically a, a proof of existence that to you, it's a permission slip to be able to communicate with your own consciousness. Or if somebody says, here, look at this photo of a UFO, um, you know, again, you can tap into it because now you have an imaginary doorway uh, to which your your consciousness knows that something is there so you can look at it. And if you ask me, um, that's probably one of the most interesting things about the remote viewing program. And it's probably the most highly classified thing, uh, you know, the thing that we're probably not supposed to be talking about, because if I can make a contact with an ET through remote viewing, um, that I can probably see what the propulsion system of his, you know, ship looks like if there is one. You know, I, I can probably draw a sketch of that, and maybe a physicist somewhere might find that really interesting. So, you know, you you, you can just extrapolate out so many things once you sort of acknowledge the fact that something like ESP exists. You know, once you kind of get on board with that, then it opens up this whole sort of magical world of possibilities when it comes to things like extraterrestrial contact, you know, um, because it's just another aspect of consciousness, another point in sort of space and time that your consciousness can connect to uh, if you're sort of operating on the same, you know, wavelength as it, you know. So, yeah, I think that's probably why Jacques Vallée was, was brought in, because a lot of the remote viewers would start to say stuff like, well, gee, I was looking at this target, and then all of a sudden, uh, I noticed there was an underground base over here with, uh, you know, UFOs. And what's that all about? You know, like that actually happened with Pat Price, who was one of the the very, very best remote viewers they ever had. You know, he just started seeing UFO stuff and wanted to know more about it, and uh, and then Hal put off decided to give a call to um, a, a base in Alaska near where Hal had said he saw this, and. Before Hal could even talk about UFOs, the guy says, oh, you mean the, the area where we see all the UFOs? Yeah, we see UFOs there all the time. You know, So there's something to this. We know that's the case. And the missing link is just our own consciousness and our own sort of permission slips that, that we sort of need to give ourselves in order to be able to make that contact, in my opinion. That end of the story really amazes me. And to have someone just say it so straight, two people who who were right there say it so straight, and then it just shows up in all the books, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking of Ingo's book, and I'm thinking of, uh, uh, it shows up in Joe McMonagall's book, and it certainly shows up in some of the interviews that um, Lynn Buchanan has done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, all of these people have had some sort of encounter, and, and, and again, I would attribute it, I'm sure if you talk to a, a, a lifelong meditator who was a Tibetan monk or something like that, uh, maybe they would provide you with different labels, um, you know, or, or say a Native American shaman or um, an Aboriginal or something like that. All of these cultures throughout time have all talked about, you know, star people, have all talked about, uh, you know, making contact with non-physical beings in, in some capacity um, because they start to realize the power of their own consciousness and the fact that it extends uh, really anywhere and everywhere, uh, you know, and, and when they come to that realization, people start saying hello from other cultures, possibly on other planets, you know, and, and uh, I think that's just part of us being human is that, you know, we, we don't, recognize our own potential and that lack of recognition actually holds that potential back because we just not using our imagination enough yet and we're wasting our time trying to look at radio signals and telescopes and 
stuff like that. Yes, I agree. <laughs> that forced me to tears to think of like the millions of dollars spent on these, you know, listening devices when I can think of 10 people that I know who, who seem, certainly seem to have like a direct connection. So like, yeah, like with the great, you know, that end of the great beyond, the one that we picture in flying around a metal spacecraft. Yeah. Hey, here, I'm, I met Russell Targ. This is going back about, uh, probably around 10 years ago. I was at a UFO conference when they were still being held in Laughlin, Nevada. And they're, actually, they're being held there again now, but this was called the International UFO Congress. And, and, uh, Russell gave a talk and he stood on stage and there's a scene in the movie. Yeah. Where there's people and they have their little notebooks and, and Russell Targ is standing on stage and he gives almost word for word the lines I remember him saying. He says something like, you know, picture the first unusual image that pops into your mind. Yep. And, um, and he had, he said, you know, let's, let's just do it. If you have a piece of paper, let's just draw it. I'm a, I was a professional illustrator for most of my life. Mm-hmm. And I, um, you know, so I had a notebook and a pen. I just pulled it out and he said, okay, you don't know the next slide I'm going to show. You just draw the next slide that I'm going to show. And he just was quiet for a second. I was just like, okay. And I just had this vision in my mind. I didn't, I had no expectations at all. I just was like, oh, okay, I'll just do this. And I drew, you know, it was really funny because I drew, it felt like a gazebo in a town square. Mm -hmm. But it's got this like, I always wanted to say artwork of like swirling metal rose thorns, like a, like the vines of a rose, like, like a rose bush all swirling around with their, with their big thorns all projecting out. Hmm. And there were these cement benches and it kind of, uh, you know, these little sidewalks led from it. And, and I, um, I actually, I was working as an illustrator and I did like thousands of storyboards over the years and I just, I just started putting trees and stuff in and I don't, you know, so, and afterwards he shows a slide and it was the, um, at Stanford college, there on the campus, there's a piece of artwork and it looks, it's kind of centered in the, in the commons and it looks like a gazebo, sort of. It's kind of got a cylinder shape, except it's a series of dolphins, metal dolphins all swirling around. And what the dolphins all have is they have the fins and the fins all look like, in a way, they look like rose thorns. Mm-hmm. And I went up to him after. And it's funny because the day I said, I'd oh, miss this totally. And then I looked at it the next day and I was like, you know, actually, this is pretty close. And I sat with him for a little bit and he kind of his yeah. has very thick glasses and he held his glasses in a certain way and looked at my drawing. He says in his very stoic, slow way that he speaks, he goes, now this is quite good. And we talked about it for a while. And, and, he, and I said, you know, I kind of put the bushes in there. And that's just I worked as an illustrator and I just they were in my mind and I put those in there. And he said this wonderful line. He said, Oh, the demon of the mind. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the demon of the mind. That's exactly it. I mean, it, it's like, you know, so many times I've heard Russell say, you know, don't label it. Don't name it. Just draw the first thing that comes to your mind. And and so many times people will draw things and they'll have no idea what it is. But then you kind of like turn the paper sideways and it's an exact representation of, of the target or something like that. You know, it's like it, it's just – you know, our, our consciousness can not only reach out and connect to other, you know, spaces, times, people, things, but it can also really screw ourselves up because the imagination also works uh, to sort of just give you a whole bunch of junk and tell you kind of like what you want to see. It's like we we all have these like filters, you know, and, and I would actually be willing to bet that the other thing that sort of made your first remote viewing experience easier to grasp um, is something that um, actually Lori Williams, who is also in our film, she's a remote viewing instructor. Uh, you know, she's had lots of her own 
you know, uh, UFO encounters and things like that. But uh, she's uh, runs a company called Intuitive Specialist, and she's great. Wait a minute, I, wait, just so she's had her own UFO encounters. Yes, yes, she has. Okay, okay, just yeah. go on. I just when you said that, you said it just like so, like it was basically like, oh, you know, she walks her dog every day. Well, something. yeah, it, it's they all tell me these. <laughs> yeah, everybody has these stories, but but it's it's um the the thing is that she says is the secret to being a remote viewing instructor and doing something for the first time is that like what Russell was showing you or what or or the random kind of targets that she'll pick for for a class they're targets that have been remote viewed before you know like that not not maybe in the same class maybe not even for a year but but they're they're things that other people have looked at psychically before and it's like that somehow blazes a trail through consciousness and it, and it makes things easier to see it's it's like a line from the film it's like you know the more you try to hide something in psychic space the easier it is to see in psychic space. So, so um, when there's a lot of attention focused on something, just makes it easier to see, you know. And I would actually even tout our film's horn a little bit and say that possibly you can extract extrapolate that out and say even just featuring remote viewing data in our film or or anywhere else you might see it might have made it easier for the original psychic back in the 70s, somebody like a Hella Hammett or a Pat Price, to latch onto it and and to accurately draw it. Because the more consciousness that's focused on it, you know, the more people that are seeing it. You know, our, our film is is out worldwide now. It's it's on iTunes, it's on Amazon, it's on Google Play. I mean, any cable video on demand channel, you can now get Third Eye Spies. And because of that, it actually kind of breaks down the the, the sort of barriers um, that that make it hard to to see those those types of things psychically, both moving ahead in time for people trying to do it, and also for people um, in in the past who who are looking at, at at targets. And actually, like one of the the targets that we used in the film, I didn't include this in the film because it's just too complicated. But when Hella Hammond remote viewed this overpass that's in the film. It was her very first remote viewing. It was just like you. She was sitting down and she was she was drawing on a piece of paper what she felt she saw. And um, I have the original audio recording of that. And and when you listen to the raw recording, it starts to sound like she's describing Russell Targ walking over the overpass in 2015 versus um, Hal Putoff, who was there in the in 1970, whatever it was, three or four. You know, um, and she actually says there's an obstruction in the middle of this conduit that he has to kind of go around. And I sunk up the, the the raw audio, and literally Russell had to go around this obstruction in the middle of the overpass that he was walking, because it was it was a uh, like a bike, you know, um, stopper, like you know, so you can't ride your bike over the overpass. They put this kind of gate there. Yep, yep. And 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 the thing is, that wasn't put in until the nineties. But she said, "Oh, so this is so so the <laughs> the ripples in the pond yes. go not only all around the world, they go back and forward in time." And exactly. Exactly. They, they, they. Uh, it's very, very possible that she was actually watching our movie in 2019, or, or not her literally, but like all of the other consciousness watching that scene may have informed her remote viewing back in 1974, and she died in in the 90s. You know, so so it's like she's not even alive today to send the information back to herself. But what does that say about the way that sort of consciousness works virally? You know, it's just like the more attention that is focused on something, the easier it is to latch on to. Hey, I'm sorry, but we're going to need to take a quick break. Uh, we're at about the 30 minute mark, and this is the point where we say goodbye to the free Dreamlanders. Uh, we've reached the end of the free interview content for non-members. But for members, this is only the halfway mark. 
We'll be back, and we will continue the interview in just a moment. We are back. We are talking with Lance Munguia about his film, Third Eye Spies, and the secret history of the government's involvement in remote viewing research. Actually, more than research, they put it into practical use. And we're going to pick up the interview right where it got cut off. And Lance will be talking about our history, our human history, with psychic abilities. And and I think that one of the reasons that psychic abilities were were first developed was because you know humankind was operating in in a very kind of a a lonely state interacting with nature it's like you know you weren't surrounded by a bunch of other people you didn't have any technology so you had to use your gut so so i think that there is something to be said for sort of putting our phones down at some point and 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 just connecting to sort of the the quiet space you know because it, it really is it's like they say in meditation it's like that still quiet you know, voice within, I think that's where psychic ability really comes from, you know, and, and any kind of contact or other thing you might want to have, it's never this loud blaring thing in your head. It's always just an internal knowing. And if, and if we're constantly exposed to um, all of these electronic kind of technological things, uh, it might make it more difficult, I think, to to connect on that level. Yeah. And I would, so you just sort of, you've said enough there. I've got like 12 different questions I want to address here, but um, I just want to say that I spent a long time teaching in the outdoors and taking people out in the mountains and such like that in small groups. And it, so you said it's kind of a lonely thing to be in the wilderness and, you know, with your tribe. Yeah. And I would say exactly the opposite. I would say that it's probably more rewarding than to be in the sort of um, atomized world we live in now. And I think there would be a mystical connection to the trees and the stars and the, the water you drink and the food you eat, there would be a mystical connection for all that. So I think that I agree. We need to turn off the Wi-Fi and get out in the mountains more. And for me, there's a very strong mystical connection in that word. And you said something else. I did this little thing. This was years ago. I don't really meditate much. And, mm-hmm. and here's part of the reason why I don't meditate is I went to this little thing and there was this... Um, a group that was just doing a Sunday meditation and they were just, there was like, a, actually it was an empty storefront in this little town I lived in in Idaho. And then we just said go and then we sat in a circle and then, and I'd never meditated before and this woman said, okay, just, and I kind of said like, I've never done this before and then she just gave me this like one sentence little thing, just like, just clear your mind and just, you know, try not to focus on anything. Just, and I had the most powerful mystical experience sitting there. Hmm. And I have spent the last 25 years trying to get that experience again, and I haven't been able to, which is that sort of plays in almost to the to the story I told earlier about having no expectations when it came to drawing what Russell Targ was going to put up on the next slide. Yeah. Yeah, it could be that that your 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 powerful experience basically caused you to question, you know, that when doing it again, that happens all of the time. You see it in, in psychic research where where um, somebody will get a really great first result because there's no expectations whatsoever. Um, and then when they're asked to do it again, um, they, they question it so much that, that statistically they'll get way worse than chance results. Uh, and, and this happened to me. I mean, Russell hands me, you know, his cell phone and 
hands me his um, ESP trainer app, which is on iPhone for free. You can get it. And he says, here, try this. And I'm, and I'm d- doing it. And I know I'm in the presence of this guy who has spent, you know, decades studying psychic abilities. So the pressure is on and I'm doing it and I'm getting like three or five out of like 20, you know, which is like way below chance. And, and, uh, and I said, well, I guess I'm like the worst psychic in the world. Right. And he goes, no, no. He says, you're, you're actually using your psychic ability to get all of the wrong answers because this, this expectation that you needed to succeed is so strong that that you're using reverse psi, you know? And, and, uh, so I think that that's such a big deal when it comes to this kind of work is getting out of our own way, you know, just like, you know, like no expectations, no plans. That's actually why when it comes to meditation, I love, um, binaural beats, you know, because binaural beats, you put them, you put on the headphones and it just kind of puts you into that zone and and before you know it, you're just in this kind of meditative state and, and then you're kind of coming out of it and going, wow, I feel better or or I had some impressions or, or, or whatever. But it's just a way of getting out of your own way. And it's funny, you know, that's what I do use. I do use the binaural beats. I was using – there's an updated version that um, – oh, the Map of Heaven guy or the Proof of Heaven um, – uh, the doctor from that had the near death experience. Oh yes, Evan Evan Alexander. Evan Alexander, yes. He he's been has a sort of more modernized uh, technical version that that was similar to um, the one that came out of the Monroe Institute. Now here's a really funny thing. I've talked to people, and I, this is I talk to people who have UFO contact all the time and UFO experiences all the time. But the only people I've ever talked to who have used that system. I mean, I'm sure there are people who are out there who have, but the only people I've talked to are all UFO experiencers that use the binaural beat thing, which is a funny little, you know, I don't know quite what to think of that. So, Well, it it definitely puts you into, uh, they call it fast food meditation, which I don't really like, but it's kind of like, you know, you don't need to spend the years learning the discipline. You just do it. And there's apps now you can get on your phone. And, and it could be that if, it, if it's, for instance, it's not working for you, the one you're using, you might want to try a different one or a lower frequency or uh, or, or something because over time your brain habituates to it. And and you're you're not getting the same effect. It's it's much like, um, you know, you develop a tolerance, you know, and I, I find, though, too, that my earliest experiences were my best and most profound, but they were also there when I needed them to be. I mean, we, we talk about synchronicity, like I was reading a, a chapter in your in your book about remote viewing. And, um, you know, it, it talks so much about the synchronicity of UFO contact and like these owls, you know, like coming right right to, um, you know, to two years in a row at, at the Super Bowl, you know, the owl shows up and gets hit by somebody's car or something. And like, what are the odds of something like that? All of that suggests that we are in this kind of clockwork of the universe in a way that we don't understand. And and that when we can kind of let go of our rational minds, we can tap more into the universal mind and pull what we need from it. So it's like you maybe had your mystical experience and I've had mine just at the right times in life that we needed them to be there to kind of put us on our way and then and then the rest of the time maybe it's not as important that we need to have it right now and so we just haven't had it for whatever reason because that's synchronicity that's the way things work well put well put hey there's um two folks in the movie hell put off and kit green and they were both there at the forefront of this remote viewing study and research and and, and more than research and they were putting it to use um, those two names, uh, have risen up again and they are part of the, to the stars Academy. And I know that, uh, that Hal was on the stage. I'm not sure if Kit Green was on the stage when Tom DeLong did his little video press release, No, which is going back now, I think to 2017, the very end of 2017. So 
very interesting that these guys were at, you know, focused on one thing, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago now. And now they're here. They're still in the game <laughs> and on a completely different. But, you know, as we've noted more than once here, connected to subject matter. Yeah, I, I did mention that that remote viewing and UFOs are kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you did. You, did. you know, it, it it seems to me like, oh, first of all, when it comes to someone like Kit Green, who who, you know, um, was the original uh, CIA contract monitor and later became head of CIA life sciences, and you know, has has a interest in this kind of subject matter, I I would say. Um, but he's never really in the limelight. You know, he was very hard to even pin down for an interview. Um, Hal's much more public about what he does um, to a certain extent. But it's very interesting to me that um, – and I, I don't have any proof of where Hal went after he left the SRI program in the uh, 80s. But I can say that he left at the very height of their program uh, in, in when they were getting a huge influx of cash uh, you know, um, to do more experiments. Um, you know, he, he literally was about to bring Joe McMonagle into SRI at the time. This was in the mid 80s and and how literally just kind of in the middle of the night took his files and left and said, that's it. I'm done uh, with SRI. And now it, it, because he had gotten this offer to start a free energy research lab in Austin, Texas, you know, is the is the official story, which he still is that today. He's been researching sort of energy from the vacuum and uh, very exotic kind of technologies, um, including potentially what could be UFO technologies. Uh, ever since. Um, and when we were doing all of these interviews, he he was not talking at all about the UFO subject. Um, but when I would interview other people about both Kit and, and Hal, which is something that I do as an interviewer, I, if I'm talking to someone else that knows the person I'm going to interview next, I'll just say, you know, so what's your take on, you know, what Hal's doing or what Kit's doing? And again and again, it would come up, oh, I think they're working on something about UFOs. Yeah, they're they're always talking about UFO stuff. And they weren't talking to me about it as the interviewer, but this came up. And so, you know, when you talk to Hal about what he does in Austin and, and eventually on my YouTube channel, which is um, Waking Universe TV on, on YouTube, I'm going to have uh, a whole tour of, of Hal's Austin laboratory where he does his free energy research because I followed him around for a few days. He was incredibly gracious in letting me, um, you know, videotape uh, him. But he said in 30 years of researching free energy, he has never found someone that truly had energy from the vacuum, you know, that actually had like a cold fusion device or something like that. They've always been able to kind of explain it away. And and yet he has written some fantastic papers, uh, which you can find on the um, International Remote Viewing Association website, on things like anti-gravity, uh, on um, the, the potential propulsion systems that a UFO could use to get around because uh, it's not that they're actually moving super fast, it's that they're bending space-time, uh, you know, things like that. And I got to wonder, just as a layperson, and it's nothing that anyone has actually told me, it's just my own sort of take on this, is why did the remote viewing guy, you know, who had been so incredibly successful in classified government, leave at the height of that success to go study free energy? And then now, decades later, uh, you know, their contract monitor, Kit Green, gets Hal involved in this, you know, sort of UFO study program. Uh, run by Robert Bigelow, you know, who who uh, you know has had a long-term interest in this kind of subject matter, and also had a long-term interest in working with Hal, you know, because he was one of his, I think, supporters there at his lab. So, I think the answer is in remote viewing. You know, um, I think it's pretty obvious that people like Joe McMonagle, um, Jack Vallee, uh, others have all talked about the fact that 
you know, when you want to know about a UFO, go to a remote viewer and have the remote viewer look at it. I just the other day saw a talk that Joe McMonagle did about um, being tasked to look at a very specific UFO target. And he, and he said that every time th- this would randomly come up over a period of months, like his wife would just task him without telling him uh, about this UFO that he was supposed to look at. And every time he would just get like a, like a Y symbol and like, you know, a series of boxes within boxes. And it was as if he was being blocked from the target that he couldn't see it. You know, well, that's in that instance. But he's also talked in other instances about being able to draw diagrams of propulsion systems and sort of um, give descriptions of, of, of things that were going on inside UFOs when he was working for the Army. So I think this is something that is probably being done. I don't know how you would verify something like that. But if you have great remote viewers who are really good at seeing everything else and that they're incredibly reliable and they're coming back to you with information about UFO technology or something like that and you're a physicist and you maybe know a lot about technology that even that remote viewer would know nothing about, maybe something that the remote viewer says makes a lot of sense and you're able to incorporate that into other research that you're doing and somebody within the halls of government gets really happy about it because you get a breakthrough. Yeah. Hey, um, I've worked on some films. I worked in the film industry ages ago, mostly TV commercials. But I, you know, I've worked on documentary stuff a little bit, and so I know what it means at the end of the day to all go to the restaurant together. What was that like? Like just hanging out, talking shop with these guys? Oh, it was awesome. The the best though, the very best was was um, um, one of the most gracious people we interviewed, which was Ken Kress. You know, again, who was the sort of undercover CIA, you know, program, which is a name I had never heard before, and I feel like I've I've I got a pretty good working knowledge of this. Yeah, yeah. He and and um, you know, he invited us to his home um, outside of Yellowstone in Montana uh, for like a week. You know, and I, I spent an entire week with his his wife, and and he uh, gave me this wonderful tour of Yellowstone and. And, and I was able to film as a fly on the wall, like these dinners at his home, uh, especially when Russell came out and joined us. It was fascinating. It was like watching this like 30-year-old chess game uh, take place because you could tell that like both of them didn't really 100% trust each other because because uh, Ken, even though he had been intricately involved in all of these experiments and even operational work – he could never it, it like it had been on his mind for decades as to like how all of this got started and how all of it worked. And you could see him kind of probing Russell over dinner and you could see Russell kind of like going back over him. And then the, the wine starts flowing and, and they're just like telling these old stories about stuff. And um, but what's so interesting is anytime I think you deal with covert stuff, what was so interesting was that there was so much that both of them did not know after even 30 years or 40 years of not talking um, you know, like there were new things that would come up and he, and Russell would say, oh, I didn't know that, that Sidney got, that Sidney Gottlieb had, had turned you on to, um, you know, to come and talk to us. And, and I didn't know about this. And then, you know, like, and, and Ken would say, um, oh, I didn't know that Kit Green was the one that first recommended you to, to me or whatever, you know, it, there was just so many fascinating things that come up and, 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 uh, through all of those experiences sort of, a, of behind the scenes of making this film, um, it just became really obvious to me how compartmentalized all of these people have been. You know, even though a lot of them are friends and 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 whatnot, um, they don't always talk about this stuff. And 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 there's just so much in their own little world that uh, maybe because once it was covert, they just kind of keep it to themselves. And this was really an opportunity to kind of uh, get more stuff out in the open over a few beers or something. You know, and I had that experience many times. Wow, that's exciting. I mean, so I suspect there's a way that like. I mean, two spies 
talk to each other, you know, years later. I mean, there must be. Yeah, there, there, there is. And, and it's and it, I saw it again and again. And I saw it with Hal and Russell. I saw it with with uh, um, Kit Green. I saw it with, uh, you know, um, Ken and Russell, you know, where, where it's like they, they're always probing and they're always kind of trying to figure out, like, what's OK to talk about and what's not. You know, because they could very easily say something they're not supposed to say, and especially when there's a camera in the room, you know, and, and, and the trick is kind of just staying in the background and being the fly on the wall and not interjecting or talking and acting very innocent and just <laughs> letting the camera kind of roll. And then and then after a while, you know, they, they kind of don't even think about the camera and they're just uh, doing their thing. And, you know, I, I saw that happen so many times. And some of the best stuff I got actually was over dinner or, you know, at lunch or something like that you know it's just it really was an interesting way of doing this film yeah this is so strange there's a fellow named jim semivan he's involved in the to the stars thing he wrote the foreword to one of tom DeLong's book i think it was the fiction book hi this is mike i am chiming in once again during the editing uh, i was trying to remember the book that Jim Semivan wrote the foreword to. I got a little muddled and mixed up, and I and I was referencing a different book, and I had to sort of backpedal, and both Lance and I were laughing, and it was... So anyway, you don't get to hear any of that, but I want to point out that a member of the To the Stars Academy wrote the foreword to Tom DeLong's 2017 book titled Secret Machines Chasing Shadows. Uh, I think this was only for the paperback edition in 2017, but I want to read that. The author of the book is Tom DeLong and A.J. Hartley. I suspect A.J. Hartley did a lot of the writing, but uh, but the foreword is interesting. And this is coming from a guy named Jim Semivan, and here's his bio. I'll read it. Jim Semivan retired in 2007 after a 25-year career in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. At the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service. Okay, now here's a guy who's writing a foreword to a book about UFOs written by a guy who plays guitar in a punk rock band. And this is just a short excerpt. Those on the journey recognize the path. As for my formal introduction to the phenomena, as we know it in today's context, it came suddenly and unexpectedly. I will not attempt to go into the experience here, but I will say that it was one of life's game-changers for both my wife and me. The experience was simultaneously frightening, perplexing, frustrating, and absurd. It was also both physical and emotional, although I am undecided as to whether there was any spiritual addendum. Almost thirty years later, I am still not sure what to make of the experience. What I do know, however, is that this event changed my view of what constitutes our collective version of reality. Uh, that's some pretty strong stuff coming from a guy with that kind of resume. And, and he's obviously parsing his words carefully. But to me, it sure sounds like he is describing his own experience of first-hand UFO contact. Uh, without without saying it as clearly as I just said it there. I thought that was very interesting, and I thought it was worthwhile to include it here. Okay, back to the interview. So one more example of this overlap. Yeah, there, there's a there's a lot of it, because I think that, that um, it's kind of like, um, 
you need something that you experience personally to kind of get into this kind of the subject matter. I can tell you about remote viewing all day long. You can tell me about UFOs all day long. Um, but it doesn't really sink in unless you get some sort of firsthand experience. That's why in, in, in the remote viewing programs, they would get tons and tons of high-ranking people in government that would come through their laboratories um, and, and want to see a proof of remote viewing because they would think they were being fleeced out of their money. And instead of sitting down Pat Price or Ingo Swan or someone like that, they would ask the government official to sit down in the chair and become the remote viewer. You know, and they did this again and again, and they made converts out of a lot of people this way uh, because it allowed them to experience the phenomenon, see that it wasn't scary, see that it was real. And, and, I, and I think it's the same thing with the, the, the UFO experience. And, and again, I keep going back to the fact that even contact, you know, something like, uh, like uh, we talk about disclosure and these other things as if there's some distant thing. But it, but it might just be as easy as you sitting down and deciding you want to make contact. And, and then if you do, then it's a question of are you grounded enough and balanced enough that, that you're not going to get carried away with this and, and go into crazy land because you can do that too, whether it's with remote viewing or UFOs. Yes, very much so. I've been in crazy land a little bit in my life. so Yeah, so have I. I mean, I think we all have. If anybody that's had these kinds of experiences and, and you, you have to step back and say, I am going to remain discerning. I'm going to remain grounded. Um, I, I have enough discipline in my life in some other area. I'm successful at something else. I'm, I'm good at what I do. Uh, so I'm able to use my own discernment and and then make sense of this, even when it doesn't make any sense. Like like if you see a you know a, a gray in front of you, or if you see a, a UFO in the sky, or if you you're perfectly drawing something that you're you're uh, an airport where your partner is hiding at halfway around the world, and you have no idea. Those are all things that completely rearrange your sense of reality. You know, and they're life changing things. And and that and that is the other thing that I really took from making this film. Whether it was Russell or three or four dozen other people that, that I interviewed, uh, all of them came away changed, you know, um, through their experiences with remote viewing, um, it, because it opened up their world in ways that they initially didn't understand, and so they had to rearrange their worldview because of it. And 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 actually, I think it made them all better people, you know. And and if there's something that we can kind of take away from all of this, it's that we're all connected in some way, you know. And and in fact we're a lot more connected than we actually give ourselves credit for. I mean, this is, I mean, I, I often say like, I've been confronted with this stuff in my life and people say like, you know, well, what is it like? And I, and I kind of, I say, I live in a magical universe, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I, I can't answer. I don't know. I don't know how these things happen. I don't know how the synchronicities happen. I don't know where the UFOs come from. I don't know the mystical reason of the owl, but I know that, from me, this mere mortal, it appears as magic, and I'm content with that word. So, like, I live in a magical universe, and it's, and a lot of people don't, and I'm, I feel really blessed. I do. Yeah, and that's too, and that's, that's too bad because I think that, you know, Dean Radin wrote a book called Real Magic, I think, which is, which is great, but but it's 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 always about what we don't understand that makes the world interesting, right? If I knew everything. If I had all of the answers, you know, um, if I could see around every corner, what fun would life be? You know, there's no mystery. And and science or spirituality, for that matter, should be about what we don't know. You know, it, it's it's the leap of faith that we have to take to get to the next step, you know, um, in, in whatever we're doing. And And I think that part of the problem with where we're at in the West, at least, with science 
is that is that we're so close-minded to anything that is not already perfectly understood. And you can't come up with a working hypothesis for something like a UFO or an ET encounter or uh, or even remote viewing because all of those things I I really believe are are intricately linked to consciousness. You know, and 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 that's the missing link and you can't pin that down. You can't say uh, you know, describe to me how this exactly works so that I can repeat it in a scientific setting and then make it happen exactly the same way. And and because we can't do that, you know, it, it's not taken as seriously as a scientific study, even when you can see phenomenon all day long. I mean, there's not a doubt at all that, that we are being visited by something, you know, from somewhere or, or that uh, something like psychic abilities are real. It's not in doubt. I mean, as there's a hundred years of data you can go back and look at, there's more efficacy for um, psychic ability than there is aspirin. You know, according to Jessica Utz, who's in our films, who's the head of the American Statistical Society, and she looked at all that data over a hundred years, looking at every sing- single laboratory, and found that there is more evidence for psychic ability than there is for aspirin. But with aspirin, there's a scientific, you know, hypothesis on why aspirin works, and there is not for one on remote viewing. Uh, because you're never going to find it in the material world because it isn't a material thing. It's imaginal, you know, and, and that's, and that's the role of the artist. I mean, you are in a creative process. You are not a scientist. You're a filmmaker. And, and thank God you've made this movie in that sense, because you could, you know, you could wrestle with these ideas of science and stuff like that, but you didn't have to present it as science. You were presenting it as a story. Yes. And that's, which I, which I found, which I found I could get swept away in. Thank you. Thank you for that. And and it's so true. I get to spout off about all kinds of stuff because I don't have a PhD. You know, if, if you talk to somebody like Russell, he doesn't speculate about things that he can't actually see because and, and he'll actually say, uh, you know, um, he gets he gets mad when somebody says, do you believe in ESP? Because he says, I don't believe in ESP any more than I have to believe in a laser. If I turn the laser on, I see an effect. I know that the laser is real. Same thing with ESP. It just is or it isn't, you know, but but he won't speculate about a lot of other stuff because he's a scientist. You, you have to go into the realm of almost poetry to 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 really wrap your head around something as vast as as consciousness and, and our own place in the universe, because uh, it's one of the things I loved about Stephen Schwartz. Uh, he's on our film and was also a kind of a pioneer of the remote viewing world. Um, but he's also a philosopher. You know, and and, you know, he, he said, you know, if you're going to accept the reality of of uh, the work that was done at SRI and other laboratories with remote viewing, then you have to accept that, you know, we don't just live on the planet. We don't just live in the biosphere. We are the biosphere. We are intricately linked to the entire planet. And and I'll go even a step further and say we're linked to everything, you know, to and, and that's a very esoteric uh, statement that would come out of some spiritual text, you know, written two, three thousand years ago or more, but or or from Bashar, you know, last weekend at some seminar that he sat on a stage, he would say the same thing. Yeah, that's right. He he does, and 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 any of the sort of philosophers, even channelers, etc., they're all saying the same thing, you know, which is wake up, everybody, you know, because you are you know, it, <laughs> you know, we, we are all connected in a way, you know, that, that we're, we're basically as big as we can possibly imagine. And, and the, and the way into that is, is not by using your ego or, um, becoming ungrounded. It's actually being more grounded, you know, and, and more sort of centered and more calm and going into that kind of very still quiet place, uh, where we have access to all, all of those things. 
Lance, I want to thank you so much. This has been great. This has been just great. I probably went a little over as far as time, but I think that's going to be just fine. This has been a great interview, and I'm and uh, I would love to talk to you more at some point. Yeah, me too. I, I would love to keep the conversation going. Um, you know, I'm definitely going to be doing another project soon. And um, and I'm hoping to combine, you know, to, to talk a lot about these things uh, in with the UFO phenomenon that a lot of these remote viewers wanted to talk about, but that we needed to get across sort of the phase one of this, which is, guess what? You know, psychic abilities are actually real. There is there is some real phenomenon here worthy of true discussion. And and so, you know, I really hope to continue to do this kind of work. Uh, and, and please, if you haven't seen my film yet and you're listening to this podcast, please go see Third Eye Spies. Tell a friend about it. Tell 10 friends about it, please, because that's that's how we're going to be able to keep doing this kind of work. And, and you know, you're, you're helping me as a filmmaker to, you know, go out into the world and make some interesting stuff that, that otherwise I don't think I would be able to make. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Great. And what's your YouTube channel and what's your um, like your contact point online? Sure. Um, the the uh, the uh, YouTube channel is YouTube dot com forward slash waking universe tv um or you can just type my name into the search on youtube which is lance mungia m-u-n-g-i-a uh and you can find us on facebook uh you know you can find us on thirdeyespies.com um and there's a contact form right there if you want to reach out to me you can just fill out the contact form um and and from thirdeyespies.com you can get to you know itunes and amazon and you can buy dvds there you know um, all that kind of stuff is right there on thirdeyespies.com so uh, there's lots of places you can see the film right now. You know, we've been trending well for the first month. Um, we've been in the top 10 uh, or so, kind of jumping back and forth on iTunes. But not a lot of people have seen the film yet in the grand scheme of things. And, um, you know, I spent a long time on this. I really want people to see this film. And I hope that, that uh, you'll enjoy it. And if you do, please write a review because that's how a lot of people find it. And, and Mike, just thank you so much for your time. You know, giving time to talk. Oh, this is this has been great. Yeah, yeah. And I wish you the greatest success in this thing. And I and I also think, honestly, like, it's good that there's successful UFO documentaries out there. Successful, serious UFO. I mean, I can sense they're popular, and there's been other ones out there. And um, I hope the trend continues because thoughtful people doing thoughtful, you know, artistic, investigatory work, we're all going to benefit, and and it's enjoyable and informative. Yeah, yeah we. We do, and I think it also, in general, makes the sort of questions that I think we're both thinking about uh, more accessible to other people, and and thus the answers become more accessible, you know, to to us all personally. Because I think, you know, all of this stuff, you know, um, you you have to come to your own conclusions, and and I think that having it out there in the ethers, kind of floating around. Um, it really helps, and it's going to help with, I think, new creative and inspirational work that's going to come out, you know, and I'm looking forward to that, too, seeing what other people come up with. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Bye now. Bye-bye. Remote viewing and UFO contact. These are different sides of the same coin. That was said more than once by Lance during this interview, and I find that to be really curious. Given the fact that he had just spent several years in close cooperation, working closely with a crew of remote viewers that date back almost 40 years in their secret work with the government. To me, that's fascinating. I need to thank Lauren Cutts for his intro music and Andrea Villiers on the gong. 
uh, a few points during this uh, audio interview. I used the gong as a sort of bumper, just to separate things a little bit. Hopefully that wasn't too much. Um, if it was, uh, somebody out there, please tell me. I, I thought it sounded great. Um, I live in a house with a lot of gongs. Andrea has some beautiful, remarkable gongs here in the living room, and it was just too tempting not to stick them in here somehow. They sound beautiful. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.